is the Enter Sad Men podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. Well, welcome everybody. Uh, Mark, Steve, and Richard with you for another edition of the Enter Sad Men podcast. A very special edition this time around. We hit 150 albums. This is episode 50. We review, rate, and rank three albums per episode, and then we put those scores together, work out the average score for each album, put it in the Hall of Fame, uh, which is our attempt to list the very best in order, the very best albums that you should either have listened to or owned before you shuffle off this mortal coil. You can find out more about the show at entersadmen.co.uk. If you found us here, you know where to find us. But uh, we're everywhere you would normally expect to pick up the very best of your podcast listening. Um, Okay, so with those introductions over, uh, evening, gents. How are you? Super, super duper. Another lovely week listening to three fascinating albums. Steve, you had a good week? I have. Yeah, no, Rich Rich has nailed it. Fascinating is the word. Um, Yeah, one of those those themes that has brought out the... uh, that has brought out the innovator in all three of us. I think it's. Um, I think there's some there's some good stuff going down there. Well, some interesting stuff. You, you know, when we started this, um, you know, fifty odd episodes ago, which is sort of a little over a year in our time, with time off for holidays and stuff. So a little over a year ago, you two accused me of being rooted in the 1970s. <laughs> and do you know what I've learned? You're right. That's what I've learned. <laughs> I, I think when it comes down to it, I've, I've discovered I really quite like the 1970s. And we had a couple of them this week. We've got a couple of them this week to talk about. Um, so uh, let's do this in order. Uh, Steve, you, you picked, funnily enough, for someone who proclaims himself to be a child of the, a rock child of the 80s, you have, you've betrayed, you, you admitted, confessed, I would venture, to a, to a preoccupation with the 1970s this week. Well, yeah, not only that. The, I've, I've, got, I've gone further than you. I've, I've regressed back to the early 1970s. Yeah, so the theme. So we got. So we're doing birds, aren't we? That's that's the point. That's what that's what the theme is. The theme is birds, and you always think there's a kind of multitude of options whenever we come up with a theme, which are very general and very random. And when you lift the bonnet and try and look a bit further, you realise you're actually the, the the pickings aren't always that rich. I was never going to do the black crows. And unless you escort me down the avenue titled Raven, I ain't going down there again. So um, I have come up with, in hearing of Atomic Rooster, some early 70s British prog-ish. <laughs> <laughs> and that has been a really interesting listen. So I was next chronologically. Um, like you, I also considered Spread Eagle's debut. Uh, I also dallied uh, with... Saxon, the Eagle has landed. And then I thought, no, I can't put Steve through another live album. <laughs> Not yet, anyway. Um, and then I thought, I- I'm going to have to go for the obvious. So um, I- I've never heard any budgie before last week. Okay, so I've never heard him, apart from, I mean, I've heard Bread Fan, and th- that's on this album. And that's why I chose this album. That's the only budgie song I've ever heard. Um, and... Um, yeah, this is this is said to be the best of Budgie. It's the best thing they came up with, the best thing they put out, apparently. Album number three, Never Turn Your Back on a Friend. Richard. Yeah, looked, looked at a lot. But the one that really popped out, surprisingly, was uh, an album by Europe. Uh, it was their, their second album, Wings of Tomorrow. Um, it was the album before they got famous with the final countdown. Hadn't heard it before. 
put it on, thought, well, this is worthy of consideration. So I'm really in- interested to see what you two think. Okay. Well, there we are, you see. We've got three albums, two from the early 70s, one from the early mid 1980s the two 80s children have gone back to the 70s and the 70s child's come forward to the 80s it's a it's a fucked up episode but aren't they all <laughs> we start off chronologically with the first of our albums released in 1971 steve's choice and it's atomic rooster steve opening album sleeve notes an intriguing addition to our hall of fame the first note i made was um I was going to call this where 60s psychedelia bumps into 70s funk. But then I thought, plus also some organ prog and a little bit of rock. But um, and, and it kind of goes on and you just keep building this list of what this um, of what this album is. Funnily enough, the little bit of rock really is just a little bit of rock. I wanted a lot more because um, they certainly had the tools to make a to make a really good rock album. But this despotic band leader by the name of Vincent Crane lacked the desire, I think. He wanted to go in a different direction and he couldn't quite do it with this album. You'd know more if you, if you listened to the, to the one after it, apparently, although I've not heard it and I've no interest to. But he pretty much erased one of the tools that would have made this album rockier, namely the electric guitar. And he also dispensed with the bass guitar as well. So you've, suddenly you've got this rock album which has got fleeting visits to the, to the electric guitar, no bass guitar whatsoever. It's the most bizarre backstory, and, and we'll talk through it as, as we go through the album. So, yeah, Atomic Rooster emerged from the ashes of the crazy world of Arthur Brown, formed in 69, which was the year of the rooster. That's how that came about. And, um, yeah, so this is their third album. came out just two years after they were formed, but already um, only one member of the original lineup was involved, that being this consummate musician and control freak, Vincent Crane. Everyone else was left in his wake and they were moving on and two left after this as well. I do remember this album being in my house as a kid and I don't know why because I can't imagine my parents liking it. I can't imagine my sister liking it. But I do remember it being in my house. And so when I stuck it on last week, it came flooding back. Well, dribbling back, probably more than a flood. I remember the opening track, if I'm honest, Breakthrough, because it's a very distinctive and uh, it's, a really, it's a really good track. It's probably the best one off the album. And I recalled it and thought, yeah, I, I, and I, that's why I thought I'd bring it. I didn't know the previous two, and I don't know the ones after it, but I knew this, and I'm thinking birds, and I thought I'd do this. Um, so a little bit about August 71, In Hearing came out, Pegasus in the UK, Electra in the USA. It's 41 minutes long, produced, unsurprisingly, by Vincent Crane at Trident Studios in London. The personnel, great singer, guy called Pete French, um, who I know nothing about or knew nothing about, I think he's got a fantastic voice, a proper rock voice. Guitars and backing vocals done by John Can or John Ducan. You can have it either way. Um, drummer, oh, I, I don't know much about drumming, but I love this guy. I think this guy's drumming is sensational, a guy called Paul Hammond. Um, and then Vincent Crane does keyboards, organs, and some vocals. It reached number 18 in the UK charts. It didn't chart in the US. Eight tracks, four on each side. It's hit and miss. Let's make that clear. <laughs> from the off, but this is 1971. Very few albums then weren't. The stuff I've worn to, stuff I don't, I found it very, very, I'll use the word again, interesting, compelling, in the same way I did with Blood Rock from a similar era, and um, it kind of got that kind of vibe about it. There's just something here I keep going back to, but without ever thinking I'm listening to anything amazing, because I'm very definitely not. But I've so enjoyed listening to it again, and I still 
hand on heart, don't quite know what to make of it. And I don't know whether you boys are any have any more clarity in your thought processes than I have. Richard? Didn't know this album too well. I'd heard Breakthrough, because um, Death Walks Behind You, wasn't it, that was the, the, the previous album, I think. It's like our, was it now, 1970 episode. I mean, at this time, these bands were just a melting pot, weren't they? I mean, there's there's funk, there's blues, there's soul, there's rock, there's, you know, just all manner of different things. So I've I've enjoyed listening to it, really enjoyed listening to it. There's, yeah, some really good bits, some lots of good bits, but what a, another lovely discovery. It's not dull, Mark, it's not, if, if there's one word you wouldn't use, it's dull. I don't, do you know what? I don't think any of these albums that we're talking about in this episode are dull at all. So Atomic Rooster, I'd always steered well clear of, largely because of the connotations with prog rock. And, you know, I decided a long time ago, and my mind's been changed since, but I decided a long time ago that I really wasn't interested in prog rock um, very much. And so Atomic Rooster were kind of, you know, renowned for their progginess. And so I, I've never listened to them. So this is my first opportunity, really. I was kind of dreading it. I'm really pleased you chose it because there's some stuff on there I really like. Like you, I'm not entirely sure what I think of it even now. I think it's a really interesting album. I think The Crazy World of Arthur Brown, everything you need to know about kind of the backstory is kind of the clues in that. Um I think I'm right in saying they never recorded more than one album with the same lineup, did they? No, that's right. Absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, and, and therein lies the problem. Bah. Yeah. One, one of several, but yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah so we can, I, I think, well, our scoring will, will, will dictate what happens, but I think we can um, file this under C for cure its egg, but um, our views will be interesting. So let's have a little few snippets and then uh, we'll talk it through. on each side uh, side one is um, breakthrough break the ice decision indecision a spoonful of bromide helps the pulse rate go down which if you thought was the daftest song title you'll hear in this episode be prepared for something later yeah so breakthrough I love breakthrough I think it opens with this really sort of hooky piano line and the drums come in and back it up more keyboards and whoa there's keyboards um, there's so much to this song I think it's full of balls there's some almost little jazz flourishes not enough guitar, just not enough guitar, and that's, that's going to be a theme we'll run through. Great piano lines and big singing from French, and the outro is pure dynamite. It's just so hypnotically rocky, and, and that's the almost the best part. There's a great feel to this song, really good opener. I have to say, uh, when this started, I thought, why on earth, why on earth have I deprived myself of Atomic mm. Rooster? Mm. This is sensational start to an album, mm. I think. Um, I, I'm, I was kind of taken by his voice, French's voice, 
it, it's very London, isn't it? Bassy boy, yeah. Yeah, which I kind of quite like. I like that sort of estuary sound to it. Um, is it just me, or is is some of this horribly out of tune? There's, there's a bit with the pianos where I'm thinking, well, that sounded a bit sharp, but maybe that's just my ears. No, no, no. I, I think I think that that's out of tune, which therefore equals in tune. There's nothing horribly about it. This is prog, man. <laughs> I think I think this. <laughs> <laughs> Richard, there's no bass in this, but there is a bass organ. So there's actually quite a thumping bass line in this song, but done by just just these big bass organ notes through it. You can hear that depth, yet another pedal that Mr. Crane can can yeah. press. But the, the great thing about Pete French, of course, is that he's in the band as the lead singer when the existing lead singer is still in the band, but has effectively been sacked on the job. Mr. John <laughs> Ducan or John Can. Yeah. The fallout is fantastic. French would later call it a contest of wills between Can and Crane, which I think is a, a euphemism for they fucking hated each other by this point. But <laughs> but Can's beef and having not heard what the original demos were like, Can's beef was that the guitar had been pretty much mixed out of this final cut. One or two of the tracks, you can hardly hear it at all. That that would bother me, personally, if, if I was the guitarist. I know this is going to sound ridiculous. I didn't even clock that the guitar was largely missing because there's part of me that doesn't think it's needed. This is a this is almost a jazz album. Yeah, yeah. Isn't yeah. it? A jazz rock album. Yeah. Just one closing comment, because I'm sure you're both interested. A uh, bit of cowbell on this song, but uh, it doesn't actually feature in ultimatecowbell.com. But, That's uh, an oversight, isn't it? Sure. It is, it is yeah. So we, we, we've contacted Ultimate Cowbell and uh, asked them to uh, uh, correct their, uh, their Hall of Fame. I, I just love the fact, Rich, that you heard a cowbell and then went and checked. All part of the service. <laughs> anyway. From Breakthrough, we break the ice, which is uh, track two. Can wrote this one, incidentally, which probably explains why um, guitars are front and centre in it. Not initially. It starts with this sort of lovely haunting organ opening into a, a nice riff. The drum, drums come in, some different keyboards line. French starts singing. It's a bit pacier. It's hooky. I think it's uh, it's not as good as the opener, but I, I think it's a good song. Mm. Really catchy. I mean, it's funky, uh, nice little breaks, um, really good drums. And you say that there's a balance with <laughs> some guitar. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah, I like this song. There's absolutely, I mean, I love Pete French's vocal on this thing. It's just brilliant. But my God, we know who, we know who is important in this band, don't we? <laughs> yeah, it's not in any doubt at all. Yeah, if, if those, Keyboards could be any further up the mix, they would be. I know. Um, Two observations, Rich, because you'll be interested in both of these and disagree with one of them, I'm sure. But I, I love the fact that there's a great guitar player on, on this by Can, which is fantastic. And it only goes to show what a great guitarist he really was. Mm. And Pete French had nothing but praise for him. My second point is there are points in this track where he sounds like Chris Cornell. Slightly husky, croaky. Yeah, I suppose I get that a bit. Yeah. Oh, okay, thanks. Doesn't entirely agree with you, though, Steve. Yeah. I think that's what, that's what I've taken out of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear. Decision, Indecision is track three. Again, a piano start. Who knew? Sounds like one of those Gillen tracks kicked off by Colin Towns. It's kind of that kind of fighting man. Uh, not that French sounds anything like Gillen. Anyway, this is excellent. Starts off fairly serenely, pretty chilled number, but 
you know, yeah, Crane dominates it. But when, I mean, on this one, he takes it to church with, with, with an organ. I mean, it's just to die for. But also, the other thing about this, and I've not introduced it yet, is Paul Hammond's drums. Crane and Hammond, they work together brilliantly. They really do. They elevate this song. Hammond's drums, I think he's a brilliant drummer. This is a man who's not quite succeeded because there was one in between. But, you know, he's followed on from, is it Carl Palmer, who was in the original lineup? Mm. I think Hammond is a brilliant, brilliant drummer. There's, there's two or three tracks in this. If you listen to them through the drums, and I'd recommend it to anyone that they should do. He's just not playing the same thing over and over again. It's just everything about his work is different. And I know nothing about drumming. I think he's brilliant. Yeah, when you consider this song is essentially piano, drums and vocals, isn't it? I, I, I really like this. I'm just a bit melancholy, but it's positive. I've really enjoyed listening to this song this week. Yeah, this has grown on me a lot. There's something, something slightly hypnotic about it. I think it, uh, it, it just kind of gets you. And I think it's, I mean, give the man his due. I think it's the, I think it's the piano parts that really lift this mm. track as well. Um, and side one finishes with a spoonful of bromide helps the pulse rate go down, which starts with a drum solo. And as I say, this is not the most spectacular name for a track you will hear on this episode, nor is it the most spectacular spectacular drum solo you will hear to kick off a track either. Both of those honours falling to Budgie in due course. But this is one, as I say, this is one drummer I can happily listen to all the time. And he's soon joined by the the organ master and Can gets to play a bit as well, which is nice. It's the first of two instrumentals on this album. And while it never gets amazing, I don't. it's not dull, but with a nice brisk pace to it instrumentals just never really excite me that much, if I'm honest. <laughs> the, the few that you remember just grab you by the throat, don't they? I mean, obviously we can't compare this to Coast to Coast by the Scorpions, yeah. can we? But it, it, it's, yeah, I know what you mean. It's, I put not massively memorable. Whilst you're listening to it, it's, yeah, it's just, this is good. And that, you know, it's jazzy, it's funky, it's a yeah. good interplay. I'm in, impressed with the technique, but, yeah. Yeah. Doesn't, doesn't grab you emotionally. I, I think you hit the nail on the head there, Rich. It's it's interesting while you're listening to it. But once it's finished, I can't remember anything about it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, let's let's not delay on it any further. Let's just turn the album over, as indeed you would have done with this back in 71. Goodness me, you would have done none of that CD bollocks back then. Um, and the first track on side two is Black Snake, which is the longest song on the album. And it's very chilled, ever so chilled and, and psychedelic and all about Vincent Crane, because he's on vocals as well, as well as dominating it with his mighty organ. Again, I'm not a huge fan of it. It drifts and it ebbs and it flows, and I can imagine it's the sort of thing that anyone who likes Kashmir might think is brilliant, but I just, it's just, it's not it's not grown on me over the week. Others have, and that and this hasn't. I don't like it. Yeah. That, that's, I'm quite quite convinced by that. Yeah. Uh, what, if you've got Pete French in your band, why, why, why would you take on vocal duties? Yeah. I don't. I mean, other than that, you're a despotic kind of band leader. I, I get it. I get why it happened. That's just beggar's belief. It, it, it's one of the great ironies of the album. So, so you, you you ring up Pete French. There's a great story about Pete French. But you ring him up and say, "Look, we'd work on an album. We'd like you to sing on it." And, he, and he'll say, "Okay, how many tracks are there? Eight. He says, "Oh, by the way, two of them are instrumentals and two of them I'm singing on." But anyway, you're more than welcome to sing on the other four. <laughs> but he he tells the story that <laughs> when he joined the band, he was invited to the studios, Trident Studios. And as soon as he arrived, didn't know anyone, other band members just gave him some headphones, up sticks and fucked off and said, 
well, the songs are written, can you just sing over these? And just left him with the produced, with, with one of the sort of production team. And that was it. That was his introduction to the band. This is such a completely kind of fucked up scene, this Atomic Rooster thing. I love it. So many great stories. But anyway, this, this, this track doesn't do it for me. This has really grown on me this week. <laughs> oh, um, God. It's, uh, <laughs> this is the one that's got in my head most. I like it. I like it. It's it's very chill. I'll give it that. It's very chilled. Track six is Head in the Sky, and this is far more like it. We've got a riff that I was trying to think of. The, well, the riff's great, and it almost feels like a prototype for something that Metallica would do. It just, I'm trying to almost place it on sort of Kill Em All. It just got that kind of feel to it, you know, something about it. No coincidence that the best track on the album, or one of the best two tracks on the album anyway, happens to be written by Can. Um, and therefore is infused with plenty of electric guitar. Um, there's another great organ solo in the middle of this. Yeah, made better by the riff. Hammond's drumming underneath it. Great can solo at the end as well. This is really good. It's much more balanced, isn't it? Mm. Even, even though, again, the bass apparently isn't a bass. It's an organ. Uh, but but it, it, it's a much fuller sound than the other tracks, isn't it? Yeah. The more guitar, the bass, whatever it is, is there. Yeah, it's more creative uh, than, than a lot of the other stuff on the album. I really like this. I, mm. I think it's um, it's got a really nice kind of groove to it, and there's quite a lot of variety in it, isn't there? It's not just a straight-ahead kind of song-by-formula. There's mm. quite a lot going on in it. Uh, I, I just love the fact that Vince Crane plays everything. It's yeah. almost like they go, what we need, but we need a bass. No, 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 don't worry about that. Yeah. I've got that covered. Yeah. Um, can we have some guitar? No, no, you're all right. See this? This is my keyboard that does everything like this. Yes. I'll just take care of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he explained why he used the, the organ pedal as a bass, and he said, I find this so much better than having an actual bassist in the group. Most bass players just seem to wander around. <laughs> that's brilliant. I'll tell you what, this is, this is another song that's full of bum notes. I don't, <laughs> how does that work? They're not bum notes. <laughs> they are. They are. <laughs> They're the right notes, just not necessarily in the right order. <laughs> Eric Morecambe on piano. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, what I would say about uh, Head in the Sky, uh, well, Richard will disagree because he liked Black Snake, but Head in the Sky to me is the oasis between two fucking weirdos because I, I, di- I didn't get Black Snake completely and I, and I don't get the rock at all. It's just nuts. I, I said at the start that Crane was leaning towards this kind of, you know, funkier, jazzier approach. He was a massive James Brown fan. He made no secret of that and that was the direction he wanted to go in and I think he did with the next album, which is why I've never listened to it, um, Made in England. And this is tipping its hat to that. I think this is about as funky as it comes. I'm expecting Huggy Bear to walk out. Yeah, yeah. I've said this about previous albums. This is this is like a black exploitation film score. <laughs> yeah. I quite like it. But worth pointing out, it's another instrumental with a lot of horns in, and I've seen no evidence to suggest that Vincent Crane doesn't play those either. <laughs> it's funky, but you compare it to the funk that was around at the time, and it's nowhere close is it it's kind of a not anything track yeah and then we, we finish off with the price which again so much piano so much organ yeah thankfully plenty of french's voice in there it's a lot of attitude in this song quite like it but the, the best bits on this album have happened yeah 
But the best for me, the best bits on this album happened in the first three tracks. Mm. Yeah, not a lot else to say. Lots of good organ, <laughs> as they have been through the whole album. But yeah, a bit repetitive, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it, so they get, it's an interesting album in hearing of Atomic Rooster. I'm not sure I'll ever play this thing end to end again, though one or two of these have found their way onto a playlist, and I'll enjoy them for many, many years to come. But yeah, Curate's Egg, Curate's Egg. Let's have some highs and lows. What do we think? Richard? Yeah, The Rock is my low, and uh, my high is Breakthrough, the first track. Okay. Um, I, I'm going to go Black Snake. As my low, uh, it's very hard to choose between the first two tracks, but I, I think overall I probably enjoy Break the Ice a bit more than Breakthrough, but it's marginal. Okay. No, I'm, I'm Breakthrough. It would be Breakthrough or Break the Ice. Yeah, Breakthrough for me. Um, and I'm with you, Mark. Yeah, Black Snake. No, not bothered about that one at all. Happy if I never listen to that one again. There you go. be interesting to see. I, I don't think it will fare well at all in our Hall of Fame, but that's not to say it's not been an absolutely fascinating listen. And we move on, and we move forward um, a couple of years to, yeah, Budgie, a band who are bigger in Poland than they were in Wales, apparently, according to everything I've read. Um, And this is Never Turn Your Back on a Friend, Mark. Opening album sleeve notes. Yeah, Budgie. Now, here's here's a question. Were Budgie the Metallica of their day? There's the big question, because there's a school of thought that says – if you look at the DNA of Budgie's music and you compare it to the DNA of Metallica, notwithstanding the fact, I mean, God, if I read another review that references the fact that Metallica covered Bread Fan on their Garage Days Revisited album, I think I'm going to scream. But notwithstanding the fact that that Metallica obviously were um, appreciators of Budgie's music, there are some parallels between the two bands in terms of the way they structured the songs, the pace of some of their songs, and indeed the length of some of their songs. So uh, this is Budgie from Wales. I can't help but think, lads, that you know, this is a band that never really quite achieved the commercial success that perhaps their music deserved. And I, do you know what? I've thought long and hard about why that might be. And do you know what I've concluded? It's that they're called Budgie. <laughs> I think that's a real turn off. I think that's what turned me off for all of the years. It wasn't just that it was, you know, nineteen early 1970s rock. It was how good can a band called Budgie really be? Well, the answer, I think, in this case is very good indeed. I have absolutely loved... I've had a Lucifer's Friend moment with Budgie this week. I'm not saying it's as good as Lucifer's Friend, but I have really, really enjoyed it. So it's called Never Turn Your Back on a Friend, it was released in June 1973, recorded I mean, they didn't last smash this out. Recorded it February and March. It was out three months later on MCA, not renowned for their hard rock acts at that time. The length of this, 42-22. Budgie produced it in Rockfield Studios in Monmouth in Wales. It was uh, preceded by Squawk, uh, in their second album in 1972, and then... Uh, after that came in for the kill in 74, although the lineup by then had changed. The lineup on this, well, this is your classic power trio. It's three blokes with some instruments making a lot of noise in a good way. Burke Shelley on lead vocals and bass guitar, Tony Borge on guitars and backing vocals, Ray Phillips on drums. It is exactly the same, same template, Richard, as Rush in that sense. It didn't chart 
anywhere other than I think in Sweden, bizarrely. Um, and I have no idea how many units this shifted. Not many, I would think, but who knows? It is eight, uh, sorry, seven tracks long, four on side one, three on side two. Bread fan, Baby Please Don't Go, which was the only cover they ever recorded. You Know I'll Always Love You, and that side ends with, and this is what Steve was referencing earlier. Well, it's one of two songs I imagine that Steve was referencing earlier in terms of bizarre names. This is called You're the Biggest Thing Since Powdered Milk. Uh, and then you turn it over and you think, well, you can't get more bizarre than that. But no, uh, the first song on side two is called In the Grip of a Tire Fitter's Hand, followed by Riding My Nightmare. And then closing the album out is, and I groaned when I saw the track length, Parents, which clocks in at a massive, well, maybe not massive for prog rock, because these guys are proggy, as proggy as they are heavy metal. Um, but it's called Parents, 10, 10 minutes, 25 seconds. Uh, Chaps, we talked in episode three about Zeppelin, Sabbath, and Purple being the godfathers of rock. Everything I've read suggests that we should add this band to that pantheon. What do you think? Yeah, I think we should. I think we should. I think um, massive parallels with with Rush at the time as a, as a power trio. I mean, hugely talented, three hugely talented blokes. Um, I'd be fascinated in your references to bands that either have said they've been inspired by Budgie or you think, hang on a minute, I've heard that before. Well, not before. I've heard that after this was recorded. I think they're not only their own individual success, but the fact that there are so many bands that have taken the kind of stuff that these guys were doing, not only Metallica. So, yeah, it's uh, it's been a cracker of an album. Really enjoyed it. Steve? Yeah, I echo that. Absolutely true. It's interesting what you were saying, Mark, about the band's name. And it, I hadn't even thought about it. And that's that's a real possibility, isn't it? Because didn't we, weren't Boston originally called Mother's Milk and had the, the wit and wisdom to go different? Um, yeah. Budge is not a name. Budge is not a rock name, is it? It's not Eagle or Raven or, you know. you Boxer. know. It just it just must be soul-destroying that... that, that a band this good just never really happened. Um, I mean, I've not heard enough to know whether or not, you know, Budgie stood the test of time because this is my first real introduction to the band, like you said earlier. I think it's the same for you, Mark. But I will certainly search out other stuff. So, Richard, Burke Shelley and and Geddy Lee separated at birth? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's weird, isn't it? Both in bass style and vocal tone yes <laughs> yeah. yeah and appearance yeah, yeah the little red true. spectacles yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. seriously it's like siamese twins mm-hmm. um but I, I i have to say a bit like geddy with rush burke shelley's was absolutely right for this music i think i think he, he apart from on one track i think he absolutely nails it um can we just talk for a second about Roger Dean's artwork, album out artwork? I don't know if you guys have had a chance to have a look at the Budgie albums, plural, not just this one. That isn't helpful. I mean, it's great artwork. It's really, you know, for, for, for anyone who's not aware of Budgie, Iron Maiden have got Eddie. Um, Motorhead have got Snaggletooth. Budgie have got this fucking huge Budgie. That <laughs> seems to be... <laughs> but but well, having got budgie and you, you go and look you go right well okay look i'm gonna i'm gonna park my prejudices right, i'm gonna park my prejudices i'm gonna go and have a look at one of their album covers you're confronted with a massive budgie and just 
at that point, I'm just not buying the album. I'm really sorry, um, which is a problem because it's such a good album. Let's listen to it um, <laughs> because, uh, honestly, the, the the name and the music couldn't be more different. Track one, side one, opens with, well, even if you're not familiar with Budgie's back catalogue, surely you must be familiar with the opening riff to Bread Fan. I can't believe anybody who's interested in this type of music has managed to escape this track. Even I didn't manage to escape this track. Uh, And I'm surprised that having been exposed to it, I wasn't then more inclined to go out and search out their stuff because it is a phenomenal riff this is as heavy metal uh, i think as you can get in 1973 i really do i think it's absolutely brilliant it's um burke shelley's kind of we've already talked about his geddy lee kind of sound alikeness um i think it's perfect for it i think it drives the song and then it drops into this really mellow bridge i mean yeah heavy metal at the beginning of the song heavy metal at the end of the song and entirely proggy in the middle before that main riff kicks back in. I absolutely love this song. And I think, you know, Metallica, when they covered it, didn't do it justice, because I think this is acres better than that. That's interesting. Am I the only one, incidentally, during that opening riff, it thinks we're about to storm into Welcome to the Jungle? Yeah, it does, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They are their very, very best when they're rocking. I think there's no two ways about that. We don't even need to have the Metallica discussion. This is this is Budge's song. They did Bread Fan and they did it bloody brilliantly. Tony Bors did come up with a riff. Shelley, the, the middle bit, the slower middle bit, fuses really well. I love that middle bit. I think it's really unexpected. Oh, there's fantastic interplay between them. And they were, they were superb musicians, very accomplished. I mean, I'd ask anyone listening to this, go, go and check out. There's some uh, videos on YouTube of them playing this. And it, they're really, really well worth watching. The lovely thing about Metallica when they covered this and they, it was on the B-side of Io the Beholder on single and then obviously on, on Garage Inc. I mean, Ray Phillips, uh, the drummer, I think he left after this album. Metallica covering this song saved him from uh, a, a financial ruin, basically. Oh, really? All of a sudden. Yeah, remember when we were talking to um, to to Brian Tatler uh, all those episodes ago and he mentioned about the, the royalties that were coming through the posts for I Am Evil. Well, the... The same is uh, true of this. So, uh, well done, Metallica. You were thinking of uh, all of these people that uh, inspired you and uh, were trying to put a bit of money in their pockets. So, good stuff. Interestingly, Burke Shelley tells a story that Lars Ulrich offered to produce one of their later albums. Oh, right, OK. And, and Burke said, no, we're, we're, we're happy with what we do, thanks. But he, see, he said he seemed like a nice lad. <laughs> <laughs> honestly, honestly, you must be pretty confident to turn down Lars Ulrich, mustn't well, we? Well, 
Am I right in thinking that Roger Bain had produced their first, yeah. I mean, you know... Black let, Sabbath Paranoid. Let me try to think. Yeah, uh, Paranoid, exactly. And they kicked yeah. him off the decks. So, yeah. pretty confident boys. Yeah, and every right to be on the evidence of this track. Yeah. But we must leave Bread Fan and uh, move it on to the only cover that Budgie ever did, Baby Please Don't Go, uh, covered many, many times by many, many different people. Recorded by Big Joe Williams back in the 1920s, I think. I think that was, or 30s or something. It's a great rock and roll song. And I think Budgie do an excellent job of this, certainly a better job. I think there's two camps. There's there's the camp that kind of likes this version of it. And there's the camp that says that the ACDC version is, is better. I prefer this one. Steve, you're <laughs> nodding. Where are yeah, you? Because you ask yourself, the first question I asked myself was, does it pass the ACDC test? Because I, because I think ACDC's version is absolutely die for. That conversation between Bon Scott and Angus Young is when it reaches its crescendo. That's yeah. just sublime. That's just sublime. So Budgie have done it differently within the parameters of a track that we all know. But I, brilliantly. I mean, I love ACDC's, but I love what Borge does here specifically. And it's a great, great version. It really is. It's, it's helped by the fact that it's a track that, how how can you say it almost it almost invites being covered? I mean, it's just one of those tracks that it just if you can do it, you can do it well. We're, we're always moaning about songs picking bands picking the wrong songs. Spot on, love this to bits. That's it because it's it is easy to interpret differently, isn't it? It's yeah. a song that you can do something with, and and you're right. You know how many times have we said, well, you know, I mean, the most recent one probably your mama don't dance uh, yes. with them. Um, yeah, poison and wine tea, and everybody else who's had to go at that and made an absolute dog's breakfast of it. But this is brilliant, Richard. Uh, yeah, I'm not so didn't warm so much to this one. Uh, I, I mean, this is completely out of our uh, environs for this podcast. But for me, the best cover of "Baby Please Don't Go" was them and Van Morrison. Um, and and actually, I compare everything to that, including the ACDC version, which I think is inferior. I think this one is too. It's too similar to the them version, uh, not as good, and it goes on too long. But hats off to Burke Shelley's bass. Oh, well, throughout the album. Yeah. <laughs> so you say, him and Geddy, my goodness, same cloth, definitely. So Baby Please Don't Go ends, and we have the first ballad, fairly sort of formulaic approach to to ballads budgie took by all accounts but this one's called you know i'll always love you uh quite short it's a little over two minutes and i think it's two minutes of a perfectly nice song steve doesn't like it i just find it really irritating if i'm honest it's mercifully short mercifully short i'll tell you what what's interesting is that in bread fan for example we talked about that fantastic sort of mellow midsection which hints at shows you what they can do when they want to slow it down um, yeah, they don't bring any of that to this. There's another slurry later on. They don't do that with that either. It's like they completely missed the trick. I don't like either of these two. I don't like this. Um, and I don't like the later ballad either. Just I, No, this just leaves me so cold. Mercifully short. Which is the later ballad you're talking about? Riding the Nightmare. That's more filler than yeah. ballad, but yeah. Yeah, okay. I, I thought we were going to have I thought we were gonna have a row about parents. No, 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 no. <laughs> Good. I quite like this. Very Simon and Garfunkel, I felt. It sounds like Art Garfunkel on this. It's uh, interesting. Simon and Garfunkel wouldn't have done this. That's unbelievable. There's nothing pleasant about this. It's just so forgettable. 
Steve, right, let's let, let's just put you straight just for a minute, okay? This is my note that I wrote down earlier today, okay? Wouldn't be out of place in some early Glenda Jackson film. It drifts and wafts with an acoustic guitar line playing under the instrumentation of Shelley's vocals. And then I've written, I'm getting a bit of Serge Gainsborough and late 60s Simon and Garfunkel. Oh, for God's sake. Listen, my farts drift and waft. It doesn't mean a bloody thing. <laughs> the, okay, so the first of the of the crazy, crazy titles is uh, You're the Greatest Thing Since Powdered Milk, which is sort of starts off with a two-minute drum solo, which apparently is amazing because Ray Phillips essentially had a very basic five-piece kit with an extra bass drum. And he manages to – I don't – I mean – I've just talked Greek to myself there, but apparently it's quite a feat to play this drum solo on a kit that size. Richard, our drum correspondent, over to you. <laughs> yes, good. Okay. Uh, <laughs> well, that's put, that's put the flesh on those bones, isn't it? <laughs> you don't get drum solos on records anymore, do you? You do not get no. drum. They're a, they're a very they're not a modern phenomenon and. Um, you don't even get many drum solos live now from bands, do you? It's such a novelty. Really, really intriguing. Um, but having said that, well, the first thing, I initially thought, what a daft title for a song. It's not like they're going to use it as a lyric or anything, are they? Cue first line. And I'm thinking, yeah, okay, so I'm a complete twat. The other thing about this song is that um, there's a point during it, and I've been watching it on YouTube, so I've had to go back and figure it out. And five minutes and 18 seconds, give or take, where this track suddenly ignites comes to life and, and the final four minutes three or four minutes of this song of why the 70s were invented as far as i'm concerned it's just <laughs> stunning um but i can't mark it but i can't mark it without being without without factoring in being slightly bored during the first half of this song but then you get that that sort of pseudo orchestral piece don't you Hmm. that's then overlaid with Borges' guitar, mm -hmm. which is amped up to full distortion, with full distortion pedal, and then a riff that is as heavy metal as it gets. The, the, forget the beginning, forget the mm -hmm. drum solo, which is mm -hmm. just a, a bit of sort of self-indulgent wank. But the rest of the song, I think, is Budge's immigrant song. Anything to add, Richard? I think the interplay between the instruments on this is brilliant. Um, this is a great example of when there's only three of you, You've got so much more space to do stuff. I love the end couple of minutes, particularly there's that that's the triplets the diddly 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 yeah. diddly on the on the bass. It's it's Phantom of the Opera. It's got to be where Aris got Phantom of the Opera. I mean, they were an influence on Maiden, uh, and actually that last couple of minutes after after that that the the the, the bass triplets then gets into this sort of chugging galloping riff that is yeah. absolute Maiden. Okay, so that brings uh, side one to a close. The next strangely titled song opens side two, and that is In the Grip of a Tire Fitter's Hand, which is, I think, it's one of the longer songs, eight minutes and ten seconds, I think. Uh, this is a long side. <laughs> Three songs, and it's a long side. It's also a great side, and I think this is a great side two opener as well. I absolutely love uh, In the Grip of a Tire Fist's Hand. It's bizarre, and it's got a, this sort of lovely metalised R&B riff, and then Philip's drums are all over it. 
but it's also sort of dirty and sleazy and uh, just quite hypnotic, don't you think? Mm. It's one of the coolest songs I think I've ever heard. <laughs> it's just so cool. And Shelley, we've been talking about Geddy Lee. In this song, he almost sounds like the bastard son of Bon Scott and Geddy Lee, which, to be honest, is a son any of us would be proud to have. Um, that bass line is, oh, hell, it's just so catchy. It's an absolute crusher of a riff. But it's just, as I say, as I say again, it's just so damn cool. When you got lyrics like, I'm licking my wounds and I'm mending my bones and catching the wind out of town, it's just against the backbeat that it's plopped against. It's just so, so cool. I love it. But again, it is in those, he's all over the bass. Um, he wouldn't have gone uh, gone down well in Atomic Rooster, would he? Um, Rich, he wouldn't have been in Atomic Rooster because Vincent could do this on his piano. Yeah. Um, so eight minutes, ten seconds go by, and uh, then we are into, well, it's the meat in the sandwich, isn't it? It's, it this is really filler because you could have had side two without riding my nightmare and... Even at two songs, it would have been a great side too. But we do have Riding My Nightmare, which personally I find the most whiny, irritating song I think I've heard in quite a long time. It's it's not offensive enough that I want to stop the album or skip it, but it's it's not a great song. It's just it's a it's a couple of kids, a boy and a girl out of sixth form, busking in Southampton High Street. He can barely play the guitar. She can't sing. And when they try and do vocal harmonies, it's an absolute shocker. <laughs> what, what, what is bland has become sub-bland when they start singing together. It's not good. <laughs> okay. Um, so we can dismiss Riding My Nightmare. It's, uh, it's a piece of fluff that pads out the album. It doesn't serve any other purpose than that, as far as I can tell. So let's... Um, Let's move on. Again, it's a mercifully short song. So we move to, I think, the best song on the album. Um, it's a close call between that and Tire Fitter, but I just love Parents. It closes out the album. I, I was absolutely dreading 10 minutes and 25 seconds of anything, but it is 10 minutes and 25 seconds that I could listen to many times over. I think it is just one of those beautifully composed proggy melodic songs that gets inside your head and stays there i think it's actually nearly perfect there's something almost i think almost continental about this it's there's that big brassy opening with the big power chords and the drum fills and then it just drops away into this sort of beautiful almost it's almost there's a almost a kind of french quality i don't know it's it's like jane birkin and you know Serge Gainsbury's, there's something about it that I just love. There's a, the Tony Borge playing this wonderful blues electric guitar over an acoustic bed, and then I don't know the exact term for it, Richard, you'll tell me, but it sounds like this sort of skiffle effect drum pattern, and then Shelley's vocal are just lovely. Uh, I, could, I could listen to this all day, every day. It's Shirley Bassey singing Feelings. Well, now you've fucking ruined it. <laughs> <laughs> but that's an observation, not a criticism. Because there's a very different sound, and I'm getting exactly that sound that you're getting, and the song I'm getting is Feelings. Right about Shirley Bassey now you've said it. Fuck. I, I'm getting something here that's almost preposterous, which is the wrong word, because, that, again, that sounds insulting. It's just so 
there's so much emotional despair. I'm sure this is autobiographical, must be. That I mean, yeah. there's so much emotional despair in this, um, and it, it's just turned into this extraordinary sprawling epic. An examination, I'm guessing, of relationships between generations. It's overblown. It's certainly over over ambitious um, and over long, possibly. I don't know. I don't think so. You might argue there's a guitar solo too many because there's about three in here, I think. But it's it's a really impressive song Mm. and quite and very different. You certainly wouldn't have been expecting it. No, Rich. Yeah, I'm I'm with Marcus. Is my song of the album. Uh, It's incredibly thoughtful, reflective, very deep. A song you have to focus on. I think the musicianship again throughout is is fantastic. Okay, so. Before we do highs and lows, the question I pose is, if we weren't doing this podcast, would you ever have listened to Never Turn Your Back on a Friend? I'd like to say yes, but hand on heart, no. Richard, you heard it before? No, no, I'd heard Bread Fan, but no, I don't think I would. But then one of the reasons we're doing this, and there are several albums that we've discovered um, that have been absolutely brilliant and uh, a pleasure to discover. And uh, this is on the list, definitely. As is, for all its warts, Atomic Rooster. <laughs> so, highs and lows. Steve, start with you. Low, yeah, I've got bits of riding my nightmare, just about, from um, You Know I'll Always Love You. And I like Parents a lot, but Tire Fitter for me. I just think it's just such a groovy song. Richard? Riding My Nightmare um, probably grabs it uh, from uh, Baby Please Don't Go, which is just don't think works as a cover for me and parents is my high okay and uh well i'm with you uh running my nightmare and parents would be my picks there you go album number two budgie from 1973 never turn your back on a friend it is the fans choice generally speaking as the best they had to offer um we'll find out uh there are five budgie albums that fit within the scope of the podcast and i'm sure we will visit the other four in due course. But right now, it's time to move on into a new decade. We're jumping forward 11 years to a band who two years later would become absolutely colossal. But in 1984, no fucker had ever heard of them. It is Europe and Wings of Tomorrow. Richard. Opening album sleeve notes. Yes, Europe, Europe. So, yes, everybody knows them from the final countdown. They actually formed uh, in Sweden in 1979, uh, and their band name was called Force. Not Rising Force, but Force. Uh, But they decided they'd change their name, and they changed it to Europe in 1982. Won a talent contest, got signed to Hot Records. Uh, They uh, released their self-titled eponymous album in 1983, uh, but then this one, uh, Wings of Tomorrow, they re- released in uh, February 1984. And uh, it, it's this album that got them noticed uh, by CBS, who offered them an international contract. Uh, third album was The Final Countdown. And of course, the rest is history. So Wings of Tomorrow was recorded in uh, 83 to 84. Uh, it was released on Hot Records in Sweden. Uh, and Victor Records in Japan, where they were even at that time fairly popular. And it was released on Epic in the rest of the world. Leaf Masses was the producer, uh, and it was re- recorded in Polar Studios in Stockholm. Uh, the personnel, well, uh, some of them you'll recognize. So Joey Tempest formed the band, 
and uh, wrote most of the stuff and sang and did a load of other stuff was uh, vocals, acoustic guitars and keyboards. John Norum was on guitars and backing vocals. Uh, John Levin was on bass guitar. And Tony Reno is credited on drums. In terms of the chart position, uh, didn't really chart, I don't think, in the UK or the US, as Mark said, uh, no one had really heard of them at this point in time. But it did reach number 20 in the Swedish charts, and it reached 24 in Japan. So um, uh, the Japanese were ahead of everybody else in uh, noticing and liking this band. When I listened to, when, when I was researching stuff for this uh, episode and put this on, not expecting that much, I thought, Ooh, oh, hello, this is a bit different to Countdown. It's, uh, it's harder in parts. It's heavier. It's got some interesting riffs. It's still pretty hooky. And I could understand why, on the strength of this, uh, they got bigger. I mean, I wouldn't say this is mind-blowing, but it's been a good listen this last week for me. There are a few below-average bits and pieces, but sometimes it's pretty good. Um, and I've enjoyed it. What about you, Tim? It's so frustrating because it's not the first time that we've been presented with an, an album that is just... Oh, so many good bits you want to cling to and you want to replicate and then they just don't quite and then they go somewhere else and you think, oh, for fuck's sake, why did they done that? But because I love the tone of the album, like you, I, when I first put the first track on Storm and I just thought, this is my kind of sound, you know, love it, absolutely love it. Joey Tempest, clearly a decent songwriter. John Norum, clearly a very, very good guitarist. And there are two absolute class tracks on there. A couple more that are really good. But then you've got this some there's some drear, there's some fluff, there's some you know flabbiness that will bring the score down. But notwithstanding that, I like it, and and um, I've been racking my brain all week trying to figure out how you who Europe kind of sounded like, who their inspirations were. And I read a, a really nice interview with Tempest about their mindset before this album came out. He talked about their influences, you know, being bands like Zeppelin and Purple and Journey. But he said the album they were listening to as they were recording this, was Assault Attack by Michael Schenker Group, which I gave a whirl. And yeah, 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 you know, Bonnet doesn't sound an awful lot like Tempest, but that aside, musically, you can definitely hear a lot of MSG in this, I think. And I'm also getting a kind of Euro vibe generally, but am I just thinking that because they're from Sweden? I don't know. But what I would say, if I knew live, I'd have been getting stuff like Stormwind and Wings of Tomorrow rather than Carrion Final Countdown. I'd have been at the front of the queue for tickets. No two ways about it. And I, and I don't dislike those two tracks, but I thought that was Europe. And now I've been re-educated, had my eyes open. And presumably this was the last great album they did in this sense and then went down that commercial road and found fame and fortune and things like this presumably were buried forevermore. I think it's a really interesting album uh, for reasons that are very good and for reasons that are very bad. One of the things that I couldn't work out when I was listening to it was, do you remember, Steve, we went to see them in 86? Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. And this is a band by, this was the final Countdown tour. They'd got three albums. So let's, I think there were 10 on Countdown, 10 on this one. Let's assume there were 10 on the first one. They had 30 songs in their repertoire, minimum. But do you remember, Steve, they did, they opened with the final Countdown. I know. They closed with the final countdown. <laughs> yeah. And their encore was the final countdown. Yeah. And and I think that says a huge amount about where the band was at that point in 86 in terms of 
how they identified with their own music because I don't remember any of this stuff from that show at all. Um, I think they played the whole of Final Countdown, uh, and I think that was a, a, about it. I, I Like you, Steve, I'm picking up a lot of Euro influences. I, I kind of started listening to it and thinking, this is very Scandinavian. Um, and that's not a bad thing at all. Like you, I think there are two, three, maybe four really good songs on this album. Where I've struggled, interestingly, is I haven't, it hasn't been able to hold my attention. Mm-hmm. So I've really enjoyed every, there's not a bad track. Oh, well, there is, there's, 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 there's one or two, not so good. There's not a real, there aren't any stinkers on this album. That's the thing. But I can't remember, if you ask me now, there are only about five tracks that I could have any sense of getting the right tune for, remembering what they sound like. It's not a bad album by any stretch, and it is heavy, and it is riffy, and it puts me in mind of of an album they released, uh, they came back, the, the last album was, was it uh, 94, 93, 94? And then they came back in 2012 with an album called Bag of Bones, which re- this reminds me a lot of, because that was also really heavy and mm. really riffy. And it's, um, yeah, there's a lot to admire on here. It's just that a lot of it didn't stick. Yeah, you uh, you referenced that that gig at Hammersmith Odeon that you went to. I, I looked up on on setlist. The only bit of this album setlist says they played was a bit of dance the night away as a segue into the final time they played the final countdown on that night. There's nothing else from this album on that. Interestingly, earlier on in the tour when they were touring in Scandinavia, they were playing other tracks off of this album. But it's almost as if this is their, I don't know, their Swedish past, which is a shame. Because, yeah, I think there are, as you say, a few very strong tracks. Right, so let's have a quick listen, quick listen to a few snippets from the album. So this is an 80s rock album, so it will have 10 tracks. It will have five on each side, and side one kicks off with Stormwind. This is a Stormwind is a classic Euro rock track, isn't it? It's just including the little whispered bits at the beginning. Just I mean, catchy vocals. I mean, it's fairly formulaic, but it's a good solid start. I think I I think. Blooming good solo from Norum. I mean, he says his work on this album is amazing. It's a nice start, don't you think? Immediately, immediately loving the sound of this and the energy and the keyboards and the riff. And I'm immediately thinking, therefore, that this is just going to be a high-class dose of Euro mid-80s rock. And I'm immediately getting whiffs of... And I and I name-checked three Swedish bands because 
Mark's already alluded to the fact that there's plenty of uh, Svedish in this. And I thought of Treat and I thought of State of Zalazar and I think of Rising Force. And I can hear all of that and, I can, and plenty more besides. And I love John Norum's guitar. It's an absolutely fantastic opening song. And this is one when Mark was talking earlier about how disciplined he is listening to his way through a week's work for the pod. Nah, fuck that, I'm not. When I first heard this, this was on five or six times before I even lifted the needle. I think it's brilliant. And, I, and, I, and I'll carry on playing this beyond this week. Yeah, I agree with all of that. It's, um, it's a really good opener, isn't it? But it is, it is very, very European. It's very <laughs> Scandinavian. How do you describe this? It's kind of pop metal. You, you can see the link. You can see the dotted line here from Stormwind to the final countdown, can't you? It's very obvious yeah. where, they, where they went. But, but this is heavier and harder. Oh, yeah, I like it. I mean, the other thing is, and whether this is why they were big in Japan, but I could imagine this song being done by loudness. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay, right. Well, let's, let's move on and uh, to um, track two, which is called uh, Scream of Anger. Hey, Europe get heavy. This is a corker of a riff, I think, from Norum on this. I mean, they're really driving drums. I mean, I was listening to this and I thought, oh, I like the, I really like the double bass drum. But then I did start to think, ah. Mm. <laughs> yeah this is incredibly consistent yeah uh and all of a sudden i think the drummer appears like he's got six limbs um so yeah rumors are that tony reno couldn't keep time or was misbehaving or whatever other reason you want to uh read uh and allegedly was replaced for some or all of this album by a drum machine <laughs> but that aside the fact is if it was, if it isn't a drum machine on this track, he shouldn't have been kicked out because the drumming's bloody amazing. <laughs> but, uh, so who knows? But I, this was one. This is the track that hooked me after Stormwind. I put the, I, and then I listened to this one. I thought, well, yeah, this is going to be my choice for this week because uh, it is so different to the final countdown. I know. That riff doesn't let up at all, not on any level. It just keeps going, keeps going, keeps going. Absolutely brutal and absolutely relentless. I should think right up your street, Steve. Oh, very much so, yeah. And great juxtaposition with the first track. I read this, uh, saw this really interesting quote from John Norum, as you wouldn't you, you think, yeah, right. He says, um, a lot of people that haven't heard much of our stuff think of Final Countdown or Carrie when they hear our name, think that we're more of a pop kind of John Bon Jovi-style band. But you know, on our night, we can rock hard and we can make Metallica sound like a pop band. And I'm just sitting there guffawing. And you listen to something like this, which I know they wrote, uh, quite early, I think this was called Black Journey Through My Soul or something originally before yeah. they, they consigned it to vinyl. So presumably written a while before. But this is proper decent metal. Great song. Okay, yeah, so Scream of Anger gives way to Open Your Heart. So, yeah, it's an 80s rock album. Therefore, there are five tracks on each side and uh, track three, side one, will be a ballad. Um, it's It's okay, isn't it? I, I do like the way it builds. It's quite catchy. Um, I quite like the vocals, the harmonies. It's got a decent solo. Nothing particular to write home about, but it, it's okay. What do you think? It's this album's version of Cherokee. It's all right. Yeah, I'm, I look quite like Cherokee. It's, I, I, I like some kitsch, and Europe are quite good at doing kitsch. Yeah. It's fine. 
Tempest is the right man for this as well, and he just he just oozes sex appeal, doesn't he? But it's a bit um, what elevates if there's one thing that elevates and it elevates it fractionally is um, is Norum's guitar solo at the end that, that does raise the bar a little bit on what is otherwise basically yeah fairly indifferent. Yeah, I agree. Okay, well let's crack on and get heavier again. Because uh, track four, Treated Bad Again. My goodness, this is a stomping beat. We've got another brilliant set of guitar work through this, both in terms of riffs and solos. I mean, it's a real corker of a song by Norm. Um, and yeah, and you mentioned about Tempest. I mean, the, Jesus, I mean, the guy could sing, couldn't he? Because he's got his full range on this and the power and there's a bit of a growl and, you know, really, really good vocal performance. Really like this. I love it when Europe do stuff like this because I think it's very easy, isn't it, to write off Joey Tempest as a pretty boy who had the looks, had the image, and an, a fairly inoffensive voice. But actually, he can sing, and and he's got phenomenal range. And this track particularly is very close to what they were doing on Bag of Bones. Well, for me, this is the pick of the album, but I love it. I think, I think um, Norm's guitar... I mean, how many times are we going to say... Norm's guitar elevates this yeah. because it, it it's the one constant. You can argue that the songs themselves, are, you know, regardless of how good the vocal is, the songs themselves are not great. Some of them, but Norm's guitar is absolutely consistent through this whole album. I think, mm. and this is a great song. Yeah. Great song, Steve. But I love that sort of balls to the wall feel to the opening of it, which I think is great. And it is a ballsy song. And also Tempest has written this thing. He, he writes all the music, doesn't he? So yeah. the arrangement is, is the arrangement's good and his vocal arrangement's good. Um, I love the kind of ballady interlude that he's stuck in there, which is a real counterpoint because you, you just think it's not long enough to get anything other than a heavy song. No, no, he's put, he's put some thought and some stuff in there and it's a um, really good song. Yeah, it's a cracker, isn't it? It is funny, as you say, with Bag of Bones and... I mean, also, I mean, last look at Eden. It's almost as if in these recent years, Europe have been returning to where they were at the start. Okay, well, let's finish the side then. And the side closes with the only song that wasn't written by Tempest. Uh, So this is John Norum and it's aphasia and it's a guitar instrumental. I'm sure Mark really enjoyed it because there's, you know, shades of Ingray Malmsteen on this. I mean, it's it's short, which uh, I think is is good. It's fine. You're right. It, it's very Ingve. The only thing that isn't Ingve is that Ingve's songs seem to go on for about four epochs, whereas this is mercifully short. Uh, it's the low point of the album. I don't need a guitar solo on any album. Thank you very much, and I certainly don't need it on this one. Yeah, nothing to see here. Turn it over. Okay. The side two starts with the title track, "Wings of Tomorrow." I mean, heavier again, groovier. It's got a really nice crunchy verse to it. Really nice lifted chorus. For me, this is the best written song on the album. Uh, Best arranged. Uh, Tempest vocals are soaring over everything again. There's another good solo from Norum. I could imagine the likes of CBS or whatever hearing this song and saying, okay, these guys have got something. Hmm. I'm not all that keen on this, I have to say. I know, I know. Steve's appalled. But I find this quite... This is one of the ones that... This is one of the songs on the album that, that just didn't stick, no matter how many times <laughs> I listen to the album. Steve, tell me I'm wrong. No, you are. Well, you know you are. You don't need me to tell you. It's um, 
this is one of those that, yeah, I kept playing over and over again in that indisciplined way that I approach these weeks. That if I have one slight quibble, I don't like the backing vocals. I think they're awful um, at the end of the chorus, but it's just a kind of queer little line at the top. doesn't work. Riff is brilliant. The bass guitar work from John Levin is absolutely outstanding because he's driving all the way through this and it doesn't change. Yeah, nice melody, superb solo out from Norum. Nothing to dislike here at all. Yeah, yeah, good title track. Good title track. Okay, let's move on. Track seven is Wasted Time, which is a bit of a galloper, isn't it? It's, you know, charges along. Interesting, Mark talks about uh, Wings of Tomorrow and uh, it... Yeah, it's sticking power. This was one of those. This this was one of those for me um, that it didn't really stand out and wasn't that memorable. Didn't do a lot for me. This one, it's all right. There's, like I said, I said at the beginning, there aren't any stinkers on here, and there aren't. But it's it's all right. It's a perf. As Steve might say, it's a perfectly good song. Yeah, and so waste of time gives gives way to Lion Eyes, which for me is another unremarkable track. Um, oh. I. I, I I mean, it's faster, but I felt it could really be anybody. Felt like a bit of a B-side. Steve, you think differently. Okay, so I'll, I'll scribble out. I'll put a red line through one of this album's real highlights, shall I? That's what I shall do. Um, no, I think this is brilliant. I think this is fantastic. Really good tune, wonderfully melodic hook all the way through this. Very nicely written. Spot on. Absolutely spot on. I'm in a really happy place listening <laughs> to this. Far happier than you are. <laughs> And if it's a B-side, I'll listen to it all day as a B-side. I'll ignore the A-side. It's fine by me. It was a single, actually. I think it was the first single off the album. I'm probably in the middle of the two of you. I, <laughs> I like it more than what's gone before. Yeah, I, I, I see exactly what you're saying, Steve. I, I quite like the I quite like the riff and I quite like the the verses. Not so keen on the chorus. The chorus leaves me a bit cold. Mm. But it's taken a step out, up at this point, the album. Okay, well, interesting to hear what you think about the next track because the Dreamer is uh, the second slower song, uh, and again for me, the third of three weaker tracks on this this second side. When we talk about influences, this one sounds like it was written by Abba. <laughs> <laughs> See, I don't mind this. Funnily enough, it goes a bit. It's when the Scorpions did this kind of thing, but they did it better. Um, I'm getting a little bit of that with this. I really am. And also, anyone who's not heard this song and listens to Dreamer, if you like your diamond head, there is one syllable in here where he sounds like Sean Harris during Call Me. I fucking love it. I fucking love it. Um, <laughs> which is no reason for loving a song, but he just, just a note. He pulls it off. But no, it's okay. Yeah, I, I quite like this, It, but it's it's Carrie. It's Carrie. And I quite like Carrie. I like the kitsch. That's that's never going to offend me. You know, this is this is this is Europe in their sweet spot, doing power ballads, and they do them well. Joey Tempest's got a lovely voice for it. John Norum's guitar got a nice bit of keyboard going through it. It's Europe. It's what I kind of expected. It makes me feel warm and comfortable. Okay, good. Right. Well, let's close the album then with dance the night away which for me is a bit of redemption after those three tracks uh lots more energy good finish really charges along i did the main riff i mean i felt it was almost motley crew-esque the main riff in this uh another good solo from norum yeah not surprised if uh, they did include this in their live shows when they toured the final countdown good high energy finish to the album 
Yeah, I don't. I don't doubt the energy. Yeah, I'm just not. I'm not that bowled over with it. I find it all a little bit predictable. Yeah, it's 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 okay for me. I think it's the highlight of the second half of the album. It's it's got some energy now. We've got some energy back into it. Um, I like Norm's guitar. It's the problem with this album is that there's a lot of it that is quite derivative. A lot of it that's quite predictable. There are a couple of points on the album, namely, I think, um, Screaming Anger and um, Treated Bad Again, which are surprising. There are predictable bits that are done very well, and then there's the rest. Mm. And um, I think this is, this falls into the rest. It's better than the four tracks that have gone before it for me, but it's not a patch on at least two of the tracks on Cyborg. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's a fair summary. I think it's a fair summary. So yeah, let's have some highs and lows. So Mark, what are what is your high and your low? Well, frankly, I think any any band that puts a, a an extended guitar solo on an album, it needs shooting at some point. So Asphasia is um, my low and my high. Uh, treated bad again, um, which I just absolutely love. I think it's dirty and lovely. Steve. Yeah, I think Mark and I, I think Aphasia is about the only thing we do agree on. We'll probably wind up at exactly the same scores, but we'll have got there in completely different ways. Stormwind. I adore Stormwind, and <laughs> I'll, I could play that all night long. I'm going to give Dreamer my my lowest and my high. Ooh, ooh well, let's have a, have a third high one. I'll give Scream of Anger my top marks. So there we go. Uh, that's Europe. That is Wings of Tomorrow, the third of our bird-themed albums for this, our 50th episode. We had better score them, so... Reviews complete. Initializing rating process. Let's do that now. Right, so you've heard our thoughts on the tracks that comprise the three albums that we have listened to over the last week on this for this landmark episode, episode 50 of the pod, called Free Bird, all to do with birds. And uh, the first one we listened to was Atomic Roosters, In Hearing of Atomic Rooster. So the scores for that, interestingly, there's 13 hundredths between our three scores for this. So um, very little, very little to choose. Richard gave it the lowest score of 6.93. I gave it the score of flat seven. Mark gave it 7.06 for a final total score of exactly seven. Mark, budgie. Okay, so Budgie uh, did all right, actually. Steve, you gave it a 7.3. Effectively, I gave it pretty much 8.5 because I absolutely loved it. Richard, you uh, were probably the most lukewarm of all of us with a 7.2 to give it an average album score of 7.65714. Richard, how did we get on with Europe? Yeah, not too bad. Steve, you gave it 7.35, Mark a 7.48. Uh, I need to check my scores. I think they're right. I, I, I actually just gave it a 7 dead. So um, I was lukewarm, <laughs> most lukewarm about Europe as well. But uh, despite uh, saying how good it was as an album. But anyway, it did okay. It did okay. And uh, it got an overall score of 7.27666. Okay. So there we are. We've got the scores. Now we need to find out what that means for the long list. Now up to 150 albums, of course, in the Hall of Fame. Let's head over and see where these three landed. It's time to put the rock in a hard place. Opening the Hall of Fame. Once again, here we are in our hallowed Hall of Fame. So here we are, episode 50, 150 albums in. Please do check out 
www.entisadmin.co.uk to find out what the full 150 is, who tops it, who bottoms it. But the three albums tonight are as follows in terms of position. Uh, in Hearing of Atomic Rooster comes in at number 123. We have to climb a little bit further and just just into the top 100 uh, Sneaks Wings of Tomorrow by Europe. Uh, they are above Blood Rock's first album and uh, just below The Little Wizard himself, Dio and Holy Diver. And we have to climb a fair bit higher to get to our top album from this episode, which was Budgie's Never Turn Your Back on a Friend. They've managed to achieve number 53 in the Hall of Fame. Steve? Bloody Joey Tempest. Why did you put a bloody guitar solo in as a track? It doesn't deserve to be in 98th place, Wings of Tomorrow. I'm looking at the, I'm looking at the albums just above. Wings of Tomorrow and, you know, Holy Diver and Touch the Night by Marseille and Crazy Nights by Kiss, which you know I'm not a big fan of. Force Majeure, Baby Taku. I love Wings of Tomorrow far more than that. And that's where I talked about a sense of a feel for the album, you know. That feels like a top 50 track album for me. And it's currently stuck in 98th place. I think it's interesting, Steve, that um, that Atomic Rooster um, was as popular with the three of us as Bat Out of Hell. <laughs> <laughs> Read nothing into that, my friend. <laughs> right, well, I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, three pretty different albums this week. Who knows what will come up in the next episode, but I really hope you'll join us for that and you've enjoyed exploring these three bird-related albums with us this time round. So take care, look after yourselves, and we'll see you next time. All music clips featured in the Enter Sad Men podcast appear within the context of criticism and or commentary, and as such are used under the fair use provisions of the exceptions to copyright rules of UK and international copyright law. To make sure the rock rolls forever on, Mark, Steve, and Rich urge all their listeners to show their love and support for the artists and writers featured on the show by purchasing the original music or subscribing to a licensed and regulated streaming service.